2: new season out on Spotify soon. In 1905, 58-year-old John Alexander Dowie took to the stage in Madison Square Garden. He gave an angered-fueled sermon to a packed house.
1: As thousands of New Yorkers listened, Dowie targeted those that had ridiculed him, calling them dogs, maggots, and pigs. His sermon continued to admonish his audience, and eventually it devolved into an incoherent rage.
2: The listening New Yorkers quickly voiced their discontent. They'd expected to see Dowie perform his famous faith healings, not listen to his bitter ramblings. The crowd started to jeer at the preacher. They cried out, imposter and blasphemer. This only enraged Dowie further, escalating his tirade.
1: Fed up, droves of people left the venue mid-service. Dowie, used to having complete authority over his followers, demanded that they bar the building's doors. If they wouldn't listen voluntarily, he would force them to.
2: This was a terrible decision. In their desperation to leave the enclosed space, the audience members nearly broke into a riot. Concerned about their safety, the NYPD put a stop to Dowie's service and escorted the angry preacher off the stage.
1: Dowie's behavior was a sign of things to come. His calamitous New York City performance would ultimately mark the beginning of the end for his movement.
2: Hi, I'm Greg Polson.
1: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
2: And this is Cults, a podcast Original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar.
1: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: Last week, we traced John Alexander Dowie's rise from discontented minister to a leading figure in Australia's faith healer movement. We also covered his early dislike of authority figures and how this character trait led Dowie to establish his own movement, called the Divine Healing Association.
1: This week, we'll follow Dowie's move to the United States and the fruition of Zion, the supposedly godly city he founded. We'll see how the money and success that Zion afforded him ultimately led to his downfall.
2: In June of 1888, 41-year-old John Dowie, his wife Jeannie Dowie, and their two children, Esther and Gladstone, arrived in San Francisco, California. Dowie had built a name for himself in Australia as the founder of the International Divine Healing Association. Through this spiritual movement, he preached against the evils of modern medicine and maintained that prayer was the only cure to illness.
1: But moderate success was not enough for the ambitious preacher. He had a vision of a golden city where God's rules would govern. Dowie was convinced that his utopia would only be possible in the United States. Thus, on arriving in America, Dowie wasted no time in taking advantage of its many opportunities. He
2: set up shop at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. Within the first week, he drew a large number of Christian scientists a growing movement in the U.S. that similarly shunned medicine and held faith-hailing as a cornerstone belief.
1: However, the Christian scientists were more interested in debating with Dowie than joining his group. This exasperated the notoriously impatient preacher. He demanded that they either join his church or stop wasting his time. Uninterested, the Christian scientists soon abandoned him.
2: This experience taught Dowie that it was futile to find followers that had already been evangelized by similar groups. They were more likely to question him than be mesmerized by his dramatic healings. As a result, Dowie decided to target disillusioned Protestants instead.
1: In his services to Protestant audiences, Dowie touted written testimonials from people he claimed to have healed. However, since the people behind these testimonials supposedly lived too far away to attend services, they could neither corroborate nor refute Dowie's claims. This made his healing powers difficult to disprove.
2: Despite his guileful efforts, Dowie's tactics only won him a moderate following of a couple of dozen people. This wasn't nearly enough to convince his skeptics.
1: So Dowie realized he needed to change up his repertoire he decided to give people a show, something reminiscent of the performance that had roused his parishioners in Australia into a frenzy, earning him the nickname Dr. Dowie.
2: In late June of 1888, after only a couple of weeks in San Francisco, the opportunity for Dowie to exercise his showmanship skills finally arrived. It came in the form of an elderly woman in crutches.
1: Elizabeth Brown hobbled into the palace hotel and approached the pastor. She explained that doctors had told her she needed surgery on her ankle, but she refused to go under the knife. She then claimed that she was willing to accept God if he rescued her foot from amputation.
2: Dowie was delighted with the challenge. In front of an eager crowd, he prayed over her. When he sensed that she was ready, he laid his hands on her ankle.
1: After a few more minutes of prayer, Elizabeth rose to her feet. She claimed the pain was gone and cried, Doctor, I am healed! I am healed!
2: As Elizabeth paraded around the crowd, everyone was amazed. They had finally seen what Dr. Dowie was capable of doing. And the show wasn't over.
1: In a final, crowd-pleasing moment, Dowie stopped Elizabeth as she was about to leave. After a dramatic pause, he pointed out that she had forgotten to take her crutches with her. Just as he'd anticipated, Elizabeth announced that he could keep them. She had no use for them anymore. At that, the crowd went wild.
2: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
1: Thanks, Greg. This episode with Elizabeth was a carefully orchestrated ruse built to encourage cult conversion syndrome— Psychiatry professor Dr. John Clark Jr. describes this phenomenon as a trance-like state caused by an overload of the brain's ability to process information, which results in heightened suggestibility. Dowie's awe-inspiring performances overwhelmed his audience's senses, leaving them poised to believe anything he preached.
2: Healing Elizabeth garnered Dowie's ministry the attention he craved. He tried to build upon it to grow his following. However, Californians turned out to be a lot harder to convert than he had imagined. Dowie soon realized that he'd have to change his strategy again if he was to make his dream of establishing a utopia a reality.
1: In a contradictory move, Dowie began to bring doctors and ministers to his sermons. At his prompting, they vouched for the cures Dowie claimed. Their presence acted to validate his assertions that his divine healing association would supersede modern medicine and rival ministries.
2: However, by 1889, the men 42-year-old Dowie had claimed were titled professionals were exposed as frauds. People began to notice that they made repeated appearances in Dowie services under different aliases.
1: A few months after his ruse was exposed, a local pastor's union published an article in the Oakland Evening Inquirer. In the paper, they vehemently disagreed with Dowie's divine healing claims.
2: As a result of these attacks, the press went on to label him a religious fanatic and a con man. Dowie, never one to take criticism well, lashed out against his critics during sermons. He accused them of only caring for dollars and dimes rather than scripture. His series of inflammatory speeches only alienated him further from the few churches that supported him.
1: As a result, the Baptist church that had allowed him to use their space kicked Dowie out of the building. Other churches and halls soon followed suit.
2: But Dowie didn't let this bump in the road slow him down. As he bounced from one rented space to another, he published a collection of testimonies titled American First Fruits, meant to expand his message to a wider audience. And it worked. Within a year, six more divine healing associations opened. The group's membership reached 1,700, and 10,000 of Dowie's pamphlets were sold.
1: Dowie considered this a victory over his critics. They might have closed their doors to him in the San Francisco area, but many more doors opened up throughout the country. For Dowie, it was simple. His growing number of followers proved he was right, and everyone else was wrong.
2: In 1890, these victories encouraged 43-year-old Dowie to embark on a tour along the Pacific coast. On the way, he opened more branches of his church. As his follower count grew, so did Dowie's attacks on his contemporaries.
1: Although Dowie was fast becoming a top figure in the evangelical world, it bothered him that he wasn't the sole authority on divine healing. He believed his interpretation of religious scripture was the most faithful.
2: As part of his efforts to best his competitors, Dowie looked for an opportunity for a spectacular miracle, The chance presented itself at the Divine Healing Association's
1: annual conference in Chicago. During the conference, an audience member came forward. She asked Dowie to pray for a friend, Jenny Paddock, who was lying comatose some 15 miles away. In response, Dowie led his congregation in a feat of distance healing. The next morning, he informed his loyal followers that, because of their prayer, Jenny had awakened.
2: No one seemed to question whether it was true or not. Furthermore, Dowie's supporters believed him when he declared that Jenny's healing was a sign from God, that they were meant to stay in Chicago and do more of his divine work.
1: However, Dowie's real motivation to stay was more likely due to the world's fairs approaching arrival in Chicago. The preacher recognized that the fair could offer him the international stage he'd been seeking.
2: Dowie was ready for his largest audience yet, ready for the millions of potential new followers to
0: arrive.
1: Coming up, Dowie goes head-to-head with the city of Chicago.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be with a personalized plan and expert coaching anytime fitness can help make the gym less frightening get more for your gym membership than machines get personalized support anytime anywhere visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today terms conditions and restrictions apply see website for details and now back to the story
1: after two years of moderate success on the west coast 43-year-old John Dowie and his Divine Healing Association took their recruiting efforts east. In October of 1890, he made the move to Chicago, Illinois. The eccentric preacher was immediately received with skepticism.
2: The Chicago Tribune announced Dowie's arrival and described his miracle healings as a mode of treatment practiced by conmen and the insane.
1: The public slight didn't faze him. Dowie, along with the rest of the city, was abuzz with excitement over the world's fair. Dowie knew he had to be ready when the world's attention turned to Chicago.
2: To that end, for the next two years, Dowie and the Chicago branch of the Divine Healing Association began to raise money to erect the international headquarters of their movement. They wanted it to be located close enough to the planned location of the world's fair that people would mistake it for one of the attractions.
1: However, a plot of land near the fair was hot real estate, its cost in the thousands. It was a lot to ask from the congregation.
2: Dowie didn't seem to care about the economic strain his request would have on his followers. Once he decided the land would be purchased, it had to be done. Nothing would keep him from taking his spot in the limelight.
1: Due to Dowie's insistence, his followers paid the astounding total of $10,000 for a plot on East 62nd Street. In present-day money, it would amount to almost $300,000.
2: The Zion Tabernacle, a modest wooden church, was completed on May 7, 1893, the same week that the World's Fair opened.
1: For the next four months, millions of people converged on Chicago. Despite his prime real estate in the center of the proceedings, the spotlight Dowie had dreamed about eluded him. This is because, much to Dowie's frustration, the biggest act in town opened right across the street from his tabernacle.
2: Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show attracted hordes of visitors, You noticed Dowie's unimpressive structure, which looked like a shack compared to the building across the street.
1: Dowie bitterly condemned the city for being too busy drinking from the polluted cup of the Vanity Fair. His tabernacle's lackluster reception meant that he was relieved when the festivities ended in October 1893, as winter arrived and snow blanketed the city.
2: Despite the frost, Zion Tabernacle stayed open, and Dowie continued to perform his miracle healings for the few that braved the freezing temperatures. After a few months, his tenacity paid off. By the spring of 1894, the 47-year-old preacher saw his crowds once again rise to over 100
1: people many showed up to see the tabernacle's walls, which were decorated with abandoned crutches, braces, and medicine bottles. The congregants stared in awe at the items that seemingly proved Dowie's godlike curing abilities and his superiority to the evil medical institutions he sought to expunge.
2: In early April 1894, Dowie got the spotlight chance he'd been waiting for. The niece of the famous Buffalo Bill, the man who had robbed Dowie of his limelight, came to him for help. Sadie Cody had suffered a spinal injury during the fair. As a result, she felt as though her body was crumbling.
1: After meeting with Dowie, Sadie went back to her family fully recovered and convinced that her life had been saved by the miracle of faith healing. She became an immediate and ardent supporter, praising Dowie's abilities to all who would listen.
2: The news of Buffalo Bill's niece and her cure at Dowie's hands made waves throughout Chicago. Soon, the number of parishioners at Zion Tabernacle swelled to over a thousand.
1: Dowie could not have asked for a better result. Realizing the efficacy of Sadie's story, the tale soon became a fixture in his sermons. He claimed that Buffalo Bill might have captured Indians, but he captured demons.
2: Dowie's newfound celebrity seemed to inflate his already heightened sense of self-importance. And as throngs of new followers packed into the small Zion tabernacle, he decided it was not grand enough for his Sunday services.
1: So on April 15, 1894, Dowie rented out the city's central music hall, The seats were filled not only with his loyal followers, but with the poor and sick who were drawn there by necessity. They were hopeful that Dowie was really endowed with God's healing powers.
2: To Dowie's excitement, the crowd at Central Music Hall was his largest American audience yet. He rose to the occasion, his ability to wow his spectators reaching new levels. Dowie started performing live tumor extractions during his services, To accomplish this, he used a sleight-of-hand trick, where he pretended to remove cancerous tumors from ill parishioners. This fake demonstration convinced his followers that God worked through him.
1: Research from Dr. Sharon K. Farber, an NYU psychotherapist, explains why Dowie's falsity was so effective with his followers. Farber states that, Cults prey upon the tendency of many to rely on magical thinking. As a result, followers endow the leader with omnipotent powers, much like a parent. And in turn, the leader, who tends to be a person with a sense of self-esteem so damaged that he requires adoration, becomes addicted to his ruse.
2: By the same token, Daoi's followers appeared to be looking for an all-powerful figure in him. By delivering the certainty they sought with his artificial demonstrations, Dowie received what he always wanted, complete authority over his congregation.
1: Dowie believed that his need for power wasn't self-serving. Rather, he thought that he was on a mission greater than himself, one to restore society back to ancient biblical times when God dictated the only law.
2: By May, 1894, Dowie and his divine healing association could hardly keep up with the amount of people that flocked to him seeking his miracle touch.
1: That's when Dowie dreamt up the idea of healing homes. Because so many people from out of town sought him out, he figured that he should build a place that offered his followers both lodging and an environment where faith healing would be an around-the-clock endeavor.
2: To that end, Dowie bought a two-story hotel and dubbed it Divine Healing Home Number One. Due to demand, two more healing homes quickly followed.
1: Over the next few months, all the beds of his healing homes filled up. As a result, Dowie was constantly at work praying over the sick.
2: His efforts paid off. The homes were an instant success. But in typical Dowie form, it wasn't enough to satisfy him. He wanted an even greater following. So, in August 1894, he unveiled Zion Publishing House.
1: He made sure the published details of his doctrine of divine healing reached every corner of the world. He boasted that wherever the holy dove goes, there the seed is dropped.
2: The seeds of Zion were spread far and wide with resounding success. Within three years, 750,000 copies circled annually. Dowie refused to settle for anything less than a worldwide following.
1: And for a moment, it seemed possible. As Dowie's publication grew, it gained him droves of new followers who flocked to Chicago. Soon, the city was overrun with thousands of new devotees. The outspoken preacher quickly became a local celebrity and a staple in the papers.
2: But with increased recognition came greater scrutiny. Eventually, Dowie and his popular healing homes came under fire from the media.
1: The press called Dowie a charlatan who was robbing his followers of their money. They also argued that he grew wealthy from the city's recent outbreak of smallpox, filling his healing homes with those struck by the disease.
2: One article in the Chicago Tribune claimed that the homes were not as effective as Dowie would have everyone believe, It stated that he hid their high
1: fatality rates. The article's suggestions were so grievous that it garnered the attention of the Illinois State Board of Health. And then in January 1895, 48-year-old Dowie was arrested for unlawfully practicing medicine.
2: Dowie mocked his arrest, saying, I, who am fighting medicine and have never touched it, am to be prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license?
1: Fortunately for Dowie, the city had no case, so he was quickly released. However, his words spurred the board to create an ordinance specifically aimed at putting him out of business. They ruled that no hospitals could operate without a permit. As a result, all of Dowie's healing homes became illegal.
2: Since criticism always brought out the worst in him, Dowie went on the offensive. In April of 1895, he published an article titled, Doctors, Drugs, and Devils. In it, he called doctors demons of medicine, monsters, and surgical butchers.
1: His words instigated an all-out war with the state medical board. An undercover police officer, likely tipped off by members of the board, discovered that despite state orders, Dowie continued to operate his healing homes. So in June 1895, he was arrested for a second time for violating the hospital ordinance.
2: Nevertheless, Dowie remained defiant. He was no stranger to fighting local officials and getting arrested for it. Back in Australia, he had fought city government officials and won droves of new followers in the process. Dowie was confident that this time would be no different.
1: With that in mind, over the next month, 48-year-old Dowie continued to defy authorities as he bounced in and out of jail. Finally, the police grew tired of his insolence, and in July 1895, they arrested him mid-sermon.
2: This was a grievous error. Interrupting a church sermon was seen by many as a step too far. Even the Tribune, a vocal Dowie critic, noted that the city was now overdoing the Dowie business. As for Dowie himself, the minute he sensed the tide was turning in his favor, he took the Board of Medicine to court and asked the jury to reevaluate the validity of the hospital ordinance.
1: In December, the County Superior Court revoked the hospital law. Dowie was overjoyed. He'd taken on the bureaucracy and won.
2: With this new victory under his belt, Dowie felt confident that he was ready to take his congregation further. After all, the Divine Healing Association was far too small for his growing self-importance.
1: His instincts would soon prove to be right. In the next chapter of his life, Dowie would reach the heights of a god.
2: Coming up, Dowie's dream utopia becomes a reality.
1: Now, the conclusion to the story.
2: In 1895, 49-year-old John Dowie had grown his congregation in Chicago from a couple hundred followers to over 2,000. Despite his success, he envisioned an even greater organization. As a result, in January 1896, Dowie established a new religious denomination called the Christian Catholic Church.
1: Though his organization had no ties to the actual Catholic Church, Dowie wanted it to reach similar heights, hence the name. Furthermore, with the Roman Catholic Church's structure in mind, Dowie fashioned himself into a pope-like figure by taking on the title of General Overseer.
2: Over the next year, Dowie purchased a multi-story hotel that centralized all of his healing homes. He dubbed the new structure Zion Home. Adding to his holdings, by September 1896, his congregation gathered enough money to lease the expansive St. Paul's Church. Dowie renamed it Central Tabernacle, and it became his new following's main house of worship.
1: The Christian Catholic Church became one of the leading religious groups in Chicago. In his continued efforts to indoctrinate more people, Dowie also established Zion Schools and a ministry training college, his outreach efforts were successful, and by 1899, a total of four Zion tabernacles dotted the city.
2: As the church grew in power, so too did its leader. By 1899, 51-year-old Dowie boasted he had ministries across four continents. He even met with sitting president William McKinley, who accepted the pastor's offer to pray together.
1: This meeting with the president may have legitimized Dowie's belief that he was the most powerful religious leader in the nation. It also strengthened the amount of influence he had over his followers and their willingness to follow his orders.
2: So, in late 1899, he leveraged his newfound power to declare a holy war against anyone that so much as contradicted him and his church.
1: Dowie alleged that the Holy War could only be won if his followers contributed as much as they could. During his sermons, he threatened that their families would be cursed by God and damned to hell if they didn't hand over their money.
2: As Dowie convinced his parishioners to mortgage their homes and empty their savings, he began fleshing out his plans for their money. The preacher hadn't forgotten about the utopian vision he'd had so many years before. And unbeknownst to his followers, Dowie was already sending out agents to scope out land for his planned Golden City.
1: His team of highly trained professionals scoured the state until they found a suitable plot of empty farmland just outside of Chicago. It would be the site of Zion City.
2: In December 1899, the contracts were signed and the land officially leased. Excited, Dowie declared that Zion would be a clean city for clean people. It would ban gambling, dancing, theaters, doctors, and politicians. These comprised the evils that Dawi believed polluted the world.
1: In February 1900, 52-year-old Dawi and 200 followers became the first arrivals to Utopia. Despite the restrictive measures planned for Zion, Dowie’s interest in social reform saw him take initiatives that were ahead of his time. He declared his city would be free of racial prejudice and provide women with equal rights.
2: Over the next year, Dowie's devotees built Zion from the ground up. First, they constructed the Zion Temple, By the end of the year, a blacksmith shop, telegraph office, and lumberyard were also fully running.
1: As the town grew, all the rules were made by one man. Despite Dowie's promise of a fair theocracy, he ran the city with an iron fist. The preacher owned everything, from the land on which homes were built to the Zion Bank, which he freely used for personal expenses.
2: Members of the church didn't bat an eye at their leader's absolute control. After all, Dowie now equated himself to God's representative on earth. Any dissent or questioning meant they sided with the devil, and there was no in-between.
1: But in June 1901, 53-year-old Dowie's arrogance reached new heights. He suddenly shed his previous title and declared himself Elijah the Restorer, He was no longer a common man. On the contrary, Dowie described his new position as a prophet, priest, and ruler over men.
2: He stated that he needed this new title because the second coming of Christ was imminent. The seriousness of the occasion meant that anyone who refused to acknowledge him as their prophet would be summarily expelled from Zion.
1: Psychoanalyst Nancy McWilliams describes this behavior as characteristic of a megalomaniac. She argues that megalomania is a disordered mental state rooted in paranoid processes in which shame, self-contempt, and grief over limitation are disassociated and projected. According to this definition, it was Dowie's frustration over the limits of being a simple pastor that led him to aspire for greater power and respect, hence his ascension to profit.
2: By December 1901, the population of Zion had grown to over 3,000 inhabitants. The town boasted schools, stores, markets, and factories, all of them owned by Dowie.
1: Meanwhile, Dowie's taste for luxury had grown. In April 1902, he used $90,000, which would amount to nearly $2.7 million today, to build his home. It was an opulent three-story mansion with 20 rooms. This was a ridiculous expense given that the average wage in Zion City was under $400 per week in present-day figures.
2: By this time, the entire Dowie family also enjoyed the luxuries Zion provided. Dowie's wife, Jeannie, had long grown disillusioned as Dowie lost sight of his devotion to divine healing. Now, her husband's erratic behavior caused Jeannie to distance herself from him. She used their newfound wealth to take extended vacations to Europe in a bid to get away from Dowie.
1: However, the estranged couple came back together when tragedy struck. In the spring of 1902, Dowie and Jeannie's daughter, Esther, knocked over a forbidden alcohol-burning lamp while she was curling her hair. In a matter of seconds, she was engulfed in flames. With that, Dowie's last surviving daughter died.
2: Esther's death surely brought back painful memories of little Jeannie's passing years before in Australia. Once again, Dowie was struck with grief. But this time, he didn't dwell on why God had taken yet another child. Dowie believed he already had the answer.
1: During Esther's funeral, Dowie didn't hesitate to make an example of his own daughter. He claimed that she had disobeyed the rules of the city when she bought the alcohol lamp. Therefore, he announced to the grieving public The devil had struck Esther with the liquid fire and distilled damnation.
2: Dowie made it clear to Zion that even his daughter was not exempt from punishment. If they fell out of line, they too would suffer a similar fate.
1: It was no surprise then that the populace didn't question Dowie's unsustainable spending. However, since Zion was still growing, the burden of their leader's lavish lifestyle would soon be impossible to ignore.
2: The first person to reveal the flaws of the supposed utopia was James Monroe Buckley, a newspaper editor with the New York Christian Advocate and vocal critic of Dowie. Buckley asked if he could visit the city and do a write-up about it. Dowie was confident that if Buckley were to see Zion for himself, the journalist would change his negative opinion of him.
1: After a pleasant exchange between the two men and a tour of Zion, Dowie was sure he'd gained Buckley's respect. However, immediately upon leaving Zion, Buckley wrote a scathing exposé. It claimed that Dowie suffered from all-consuming ambition and an insatiable love of power. Furthermore, Buckley wrote, if Dowie really believed he was a prophet, then he was on the edge of insanity.
2: Desperate to prove Buckley wrong, Dowie announced an expedition to New York City, the journalist's hometown. He was going to convert New York, the notorious island of vice, into another Zion.
1: By this time, 55-year-old Dowie had racked up thousands of dollars in debt. Despite his already taxed finances, in October 1903, he demanded more donations from the church. Then Dowie rented out eight trains and packed them with his followers. Together, they all set off for New York.
2: Upon arrival in New York City, the Zion citizens were easy to spot. They wore leather satchels and greeted everyone with the line, Peace to thee, as they scoured every borough of the city for converts.
1: Dowie rented out Madison Square Garden for two weeks. He believed that the masses would flock to him, just as they did in Chicago. And during Dowie's first service, it seemed like his success was imminent. The auditorium was filled to the rafters. However, the crowds quickly grew upset over Dowie's angry rants and inflammatory rhetoric. The man whose charisma had once attracted the faithful and curious alike now failed to keep the audience's attention.
2: This first failure was representative of Dowie's entire New York sojourn. The following month, he and his delegation returned to Zion in defeat. They'd only converted a paltry 100 New Yorkers. Even worse, The venture had cost them $300,000, nearly $9 million in today's value.
1: Adding insult to injury, upon returning to Zion, creditors showed up, ready to collect on Dowie's debts. Unfortunately, there was no money to pay them. Dowie's profligate spending had cleaned out the city's bank and along with it, his followers' personal savings. They were bankrupt.
2: As a result, the federal government took ownership of Zion and shut down the city. Devastated families sank into extreme poverty. Their circumstances were so dire they could barely afford food. Still, Dowie refused to admit any wrongdoing.
1: Yet despite his incompetence, in January 1904, a sympathetic judge threw Dowie a lifeline. The courts gave him control of Zion once more and arranged an extension from his creditors. Dowie could have looked at this development as his chance to save his city from the edge of ruin. Instead, the spiritual leader made a decision that was truly unforgettable to many in his congregation. He decided to go on a world tour.
2: Dowie again dipped into the city's already low funds to finance his first-class accommodations in Europe, Australia, and Hawaii. Dowie's ill-timed departure proved to many just how out of touch their leader had become. And still, their faith in him was so resolute they couldn't abandon him.
1: 57-year-old Dowie took their continued allegiance as tacit approval of his actions. And by 1905, he escalated his behavior, becoming even more erratic. He placed new rules on the city, stating that no one could marry unless he approved it. That year, Dowie also announced his plans for a plantation in Mexico and requested more money to fund it.
2: The city's leadership, an exclusive group of six, dubbed the Overseers, knew the situation was dire but they too benefited from the lavish lifestyle Dowie lived. Their hands tied, they turned their backs on the city's suffering.
1: But Dowie's good times finally screeched to a halt in September 1905, when he suffered from a stroke. The malady left him weakened. Using his frail health as an excuse to leave the harsh Chicago winter, Dowie traveled to Mexico as soon as he was mobile again.
2: Although the city continued to implode due to his far-fetched demands, Dowie believed his rule over Zion would go unquestioned, even in his absence. He left his right-hand man, Wilbur Glenn Volova, in charge, giving him power of attorney and complete control of Zion.
1: Shortly after Dowie's departure, Volova made the decision that if Dowie wouldn't do anything to save the city, he would.
2: The takeover was quick. In April 1906, Dowie received a letter signed by his group of overseers. It claimed that they had suspended him from office due to his mismanagement of Zion.
1: Dowie saw this as a coup, but as he boiled with anger thousands of miles away, Volvo was able to turn the city against their disgraced prophet.
2: He did this by revealing to the citizens of Zion that Dowie had embezzled millions of dollars from them.
1: Volova's critical words worked to pierce the spell of indoctrination Dawi had cast over the town. So when the absentee prophet returned to Zion in late April, for the first time, he wasn't received by an adoring crowd. In fact, the citizens of Zion were so upset that they refused to attend their former prophet's sermons.
2: The final gut punch came when the citizens of Zion opted to elect Valava mayor and town preacher. After decades of work, Dowie was now shunned by the society he created. Likely out of pity, Vallava allowed him to move into Zion House. A few months later, 59-year-old Dawi died, with only a handful of people by his side.
1: Despite Dowie's ignominious end, his enduring influence is undeniable. Those who studied under him went on to train others, and over the following decades continued to establish congregations using his teachings.
2: Today, Dowie is considered one of the founding fathers of American Pentecostalism, the branch of Christianity that emphasizes faith healing.
1: Over 100 years later, traces of his theatricality and controversial beliefs have carried over to televangelists. Many of them are unaware of the man who pioneered miracle healings into a multi-million dollar enterprise, even as they pick from Dowie's pocket of tricks.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next week with a new episode.
1: You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify's making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.
2: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these episodes and want to hear more, remember to follow Cults free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Tuesday.